Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. Each show goes through an intriguing tale about people and events that happened in the past, all of which will be brought to life by an array of amazing voice talent from across the world. And there are a huge range of subjects to choose from, from activists to war heroes, creatives and, of course, murderers. We have it all. This particular episode is all about the Fry family, those behind Fry's Chocolate Company, as well as the creators of the chocolate Easter egg that you know and love today. So sit back and relax and listen to the latest instalment of the Backtracker History Show, bringing the past back to life. The arrival of Easter has been associated with eggs for centuries. The egg is an ancient symbol of new life and has links with pagan festivals celebrating spring. From a Christian perspective, Easter eggs are said to represent Jesus' emergence from the tomb and resurrection. Decorating eggs for Easter is a tradition that dates back to at least the 13th century, according to some sources. One explanation for this custom was that eggs would have been a forbidden food during Lent, so people would paint and decorate them to mark the end of the period of penance and fasting, then eat them on Easter as a celebration. And as for the chocolate eggs, it was a Bristol chocolate company that first came up with the idea of making an egg out of cocoa. Although apparently solid chocolate eggs were already being made in Germany and France, but Fry's hit on a surefire secret recipe to make them hollow inside. Their method involved mixing cocoa fat with cocoa powder and sugar to make a smooth paste that could be poured into moulds and would set firmly. Word of the Week And this week, I give you not so much a word, but a name. Easter Island, which is so called because it was discovered by Dutch navigator Jacob Ragovien on April 2nd, 1722, which just so happened to be Easter Monday. It earlier had been visited by English pirate Edward Davis in 1695, but he neglected to name it. The native Polynesian name is Mata Kaitaran, which means eyes that watch the stars. Joseph Fry was born in Sutton Benger, Wiltshire, England, in 1728, into a Quaker family. He was educated in the north of England before becoming an apprentice to Dr. Henry Portsmouth in Basingstoke who trained Joseph extensively in the medical properties of herbs, plants and compound drugs. And it was here that he met and married Anna, Portsmouth's daughter. And after qualifying as a physician, he set up his own apothecary store in Bristol in 1748, 
At this time, Bristol was a major port where ships arrived from and departed to the New World. One of the commodities that they brought was cocoa. And with his strong beliefs in the health qualities of cocoa powder, Joseph taught himself several recipes for cocoa and drinking chocolate. One use for cocoa at the time was to mask unpleasant tastes in some medicinal preparations. Joseph took some time out from the chocolate business to concentrate on typefounding, entering into partnership with William Pine, the first printer of the newspaper The Bristol Gazette, who had a large business in Wine Street. Here, they established the font based on Baskerville, a serif typeface designed in the 1750s by John Baskerville in Birmingham. John Smith's book, The Printed Grammar of 1787, says... Since the first appearance of Smith's Printer's Grammar and Mr. Lookham's History of Printing, many very useful improvements have been made in the letter foundry of Messrs. Fry and Son, which begun in 1764 and has been continued with great perseverance and assiduity and at a very considerable expense. The plan on which they first sat out was an improvement of the types of the late Mr. Baskerville of Birmingham, eminent for his ingenuity in this line, as also for his curious printing, many proofs of which are extant and much admired. But the shape of Mr. Castellan's type has since been copied by them, and such accuracy as not to be distinguished from those of that celebrated founder." Their font had gone on to become marketed in the 20th century as Fry's Baskerville, or Baskerville Oldface. A digitisation based on the more delicate larger sizes is included with some Microsoft software. And so with hard work, success came, and Fry's Chocolate Company was originally founded in 1761 by Joseph Fry and John Vaughan when they bought Charles Churchman's Chocolate Company in Bristol, which had a patent from King George II for a water-powered machine that could grind the cocoa flakes to a fine powder and produce a superior drink. In 1777, they moved the chocolate works to a larger premises on the banks of the River Froome, which supplied the water to power the chocolate grinding machines. They called the company Fry, Vaughan and Co. Joseph Fry died on the 29th of March 1787, aged 59, and the business was taken over by his wife Anna and their son, Joseph Storrs Fry I, who made some significant innovations. water supply from the River Froome was not reliable, and Joseph took the bold step of installing one of James Watt's steam engines at the chocolate works. It revolutionised cocoa production and attracted a great deal of interest from other manufacturers. George III also granted him a patent to build a new machine for roasting the beans, which was installed in the factory next door. In 1822, Joseph Storrs Fry I made his sons Richard, Francis and Joseph partners 
and formally established J.S. Fry and Sons. And by 1824, Fry's were using 40% of the cocoa imported into Britain, and their sales had risen to £12,000. The firm was run on austere lines, in keeping with Quaker simplicity. Each day commenced with a meeting, at which a hymn was sung, and there was a period of silence. After the death of Joseph Dawes Fries I in 1835, the business passed to his three sons, Joseph, Francis and Richard. The three brothers tried further innovations, such as adding arrowroot to absorb some of the oil that was found in the cocoa. In 1847, Fry's Chocolate Factory, which was located in Union Street, Bristol, moulded the first ever chocolate bar suitable for widespread consumption. The Illustrated London News took an interest in 1851, discussing the work of Fry and Son, the ingredients in their products, and how the chocolate was made. This brought a lot of publicity, and the people began trying out the chocolate. (laughs) Word on the street. Today we visit Air Balloon Hill, BS5, Bristol. The story goes that on the 10th of January, 1784, a Dr. Parry and a Mr. Dinwiddie set off in hot air balloons from Bath. Although it's not recorded where Dr. Parry landed, Mr. Dinwiddie touched down on this hill. In 1800, Balloon House Grammar School was built here. The firm began producing Fry's Chocolate Cream Bar in 1866, now the oldest brand of chocolate bar in the world. Over 220 products were introduced in the following decades, including production of the first chocolate Easter egg in the UK in 1873, and the Fry's Turkish Delight, or Fry's Turkish Bar, in 1914. It was a slow start with not many people being familiar with the product in Britain. In those days, the chocolate was flavoured with milk or hot water. But the company knew they had to make chocolate more affordable for everyone, and they sold pearl cocoa, a cheaper product. This opened the market to less well-off families, and for the more discerning palate, they also produced a more finely ground cocoa. The company's travelling salesmen were very successful, and it's said that one brought in 95 orders valued at £10,000 from just four towns. In 1869, the firm employed 250 people, all relatively well paid, and it grew fast. By January 1896, the number had grown to 4,500. The firm became a limited company with an authorised capital of £1 million. Joseph Storrs Fry II, the great-grandson of the first Joseph Fry, was the first chairman and by 1907, J.S. Fry & Sons Limited 
was Britain's 51st largest manufacturing employer. In 1878, Joseph Storrs Fry II and Francis James Fry took over, but they didn't see eye to eye. They only communicated by letter. And during this time, they faced stiff competition from the likes of Cadbury Brothers of Birmingham. Now, one reason why Fry's lost out in the race to develop a commercially successful milk chocolate before its rivals was the difficulty in bringing thousands of gallons of fresh milk into central Bristol each day. The firm went with dried milk instead, and the chocolate wasn't as good. Meanwhile, Capri's were introducing new products and using modern technology. Coming from a devout Quaker family, Joseph Storrs Fry II was a very religious man and would gather all the staff together before nine each morning for a Bible reading, hymns and prayers. The firm of J.S. Fry & Sons was a major local employer, first in Bristol and later in Somerdale in Cainsham. Rules in the Union Street Factory included the prohibition of profane oaths, improper expression, and do not bring into the place the news or gossip you may have heard outdoors. And lastly, a person who takes food in a disagreeable or noisy way is never a nice companion. All the members of the Fry family were devout Quakers, known for their quiet kindness and generosity. Joseph Storrs Fry II was a leading figure at the meeting house at Friars in Bristol and a supporter of the temperance and Sunday schools being prominent in the founding of the Friends First Day Sunday Association in 1847. Fry's most famous advert was for its Five Boys chocolate, based on a photo taken in 1886. It featured Lindsay Poulton, the son of the photographer, pulling five different faces, headed desperation, pacification, expectation, acclimation, and realisation. It's Fry's. The first image, desperation, was achieved when Lindsay's father soaked a cloth in ammonia and wrapped it round the boy's neck to make him cry. Lindsay himself related this story to Fry's employees when he was given a tour of the factory while in his 80s. Fry's was ahead of the game in marketing and scored a major coup when it was chosen as sole supplier of cocoa to Robert F. Scott's ill-fated 1910-1912 Polar Expedition. When Scott's supply hut was uncovered from the ice in the 1950s, cases of Fry's cocoa were found and returned to Bristol although some are still in the Antarctic to this day. When Fry's launched their Crunchy Bar in 1929, it was a huge success. The way of making that crunchy, sugary toffee centre was a complicated secret, but in 1935, the management of Roundtrees received a package promising to reveal the secret in return for £5,000, which is around £284,000 today. The people at Roundtrees were shocked by this treachery and immediately ratted out the sender to Fry's back in Bristol. When the new factory at Keynesham was being built in the 1920s, Fry's ran a competition 
offering £500 to whoever could come up with the name for the site. And they were overwhelmed with entries. A massive 173,000 to be precise, of which no less than 120 suggested Summerdale. And all 120 people each got a fiver. During the 1950s, Fry's was the fastest growing chocolate firm in Britain, thanks to old favourites being revitalised and new lines being introduced. By the end of the 1960s, Cadbury's and Fry's had fully merged, and several old classics, such as Five Boys, disappeared or took on the Cadbury name. The Summerdale factory in Kingsham near Bristol continued to operate, until it closed in 2011 with a loss of around 400 jobs due to the land being much more valuable for housing. This caused more outrage as it followed the takeover of Cadbury PLC by American company Kraft Foods in 2010. Kraft though had specifically agreed during the takeover battle to keep the site open, but rather controversially the Royal Bank of Scotland, a bank 84% owned by the UK taxpayer at the time, funded the craft takeover. Production now takes place in Poland though, with the Summerdale site a retirement community called the Chocolate Quarter. And now I'd like to tell you about another member of the Fry family, Nora, who achieved a lot in her lifetime and is so highly regarded in this area that she has a couple of buildings named after her. Nora Fry, daughter of Francis James Fry and granddaughter of Joseph Storrs Fry I, was born and educated in Bristol and was an advocate for better services for people with learning disabilities. She was very concerned about the lack of proper schools for disabled children and the shortage of housing for people with learning disabilities. She studied at Cambridge University and did an apprenticeship with the Charity Organisation Society, a home visiting service that formed the basis for modern social work, which is where her drive to help people with learning disabilities began. For over 50 years, she was a member of the Council of Bristol University and had a very close relationship with the university staff. Nora Fry gave the university some money to set up the Department of Mental Health. And when the School for Policy Studies first opened in 1988, they were looking for a name for the research centre. They decided to name the centre after Nora Fry because she did so much for people with learning disabilities. So the Nora Fry Research Centre has pursued a programme of research which has helped us to see people with learning disabilities in a new light and challenge our preconceptions about their identity. The centre makes a positive difference in the lives of disabled children, young people and adults. When Nora died in 1960, she left money to the university to be used for teaching and for finding out more about the needs of people with learning disabilities and mental illness. Her other accolades include becoming the first female councillor in Somerset back in 1918 as well as having a hospital in Shepton Mallet named after her. In 
Hello, everybody. How are you doing today? My name is Michael Rocco. My name is Raf Stitt. And who are we, Raf? We are the host of Straight to DVD. We are a film review joker memeing podcast. That's who we are. Oh, yeah. That's what we do. This is who we are. This is what we do. Come listen to us. You can find us on Instagram at straight to DVD pod. That's the number two. You can also find us on Apple Music and Spotify. Where else can they find us, Raph? They can find us wherever they find podcasts, wherever you listen, whether it's, like you said, Apple, Spotify, maybe Google Play. Twitter? Uh, they can find us on Twitter. Uh, same handle, at straight to DVD pod. Fantastic. You can follow the two of us on Instagram. Michael, what's your handle? At Michael underscore Rocco underscore. At Raf Stitt, all one word. We uh, we hope you come come join us for some movie chatter, some banter, hopefully some laughs. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. That's about it. That's, that's it. I, there's nothing else for us to tell you. That's all we've got. So uh, we hope to uh, see you all soon. Check us out. Goodbye. In the news today, Malcolm Jones of Bishopston, Bristol, has recently declared that he's bought 51% of a vampire hunting company. He says he's the main stakeholder. Back in the day facts. And so we start with the 8th of April 1945, during World War II, after an air raid accidentally destroys a train carrying about 4,000 Nazi concentration camp internees in Prussian Hanover. The survivors were massacred by the Nazis. On the 9th of April 1682, Robert de Cavalier de La Salle discovers the mouth of the Mississippi River and claims it for France, naming it Louisiana. On the 10th of April 1912, RMS Titanic set sail from Southampton in England on her maiden and only journey. The 11th of April 1976 sees the Apple I created. It was originally called the Apple Computer and later known as Apple I and was an 8-bit desktop computer made by Apple Computer Company, now called Apple Inc., in 1976. It was designed by Steve Wozniak, and the idea of selling the computer came from his friend and Apple co-founder, Steve Jobs. The Apple I was Apple's first product, and to finance its creation, Wozniak sold his HP 65 calculator for $500, and Jobs sold a second-hand VW microbus. And on the 12th of April, 1831, when soldiers were marching on the Broughton Suspension Bridge in Manchester, they caused it to collapse. The 74 men of the 60th Rifle Corps carried out an exercise on Cursor Moor under the command of Lieutenant Percy Slingsby Fitzgerald. They used the bridge to return to their barracks in Saltford, and the soldiers, who were marching four abreast, felt it begin to vibrate in time with their footsteps. As they found the vibrations amusing, some of them started to whistle a marching tune. The bridge began to vibrate more and more, and when the head of the column had almost reached the pendulum's side, 
they heard a sound resembling an irregular discharge of firearms, as it was later described. One of the iron columns supporting the suspension chains on the Broughton side of the river fell towards the bridge, carrying with it a large stone from the pier to which it had been bolted. As the corner of the bridge was no longer supported, it fell into the river. About 40 of the soldiers were thrown into the water or against the chains. Fortunately, though, no man was killed, but 20 were injured, some severely with broken bones and contusions to their head. The 13th of April 1997 saw Tiger Woods becoming the youngest golfer to win the Masters tournament. On the 14th of April 1471 in England, the Yorkists under Edward IV defeat the Lancastrians under the Earl of Warwick at the Battle of Barnet. The Earl is killed and Edward resumes the throne. And lastly, also on the 14th of April, but in 1977, Sarah Michelle Gellar, who's famous for the iconic character Buffy Summers in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, is born. Well, that's it, I'm afraid, the end of another show. And I hope you like the chocolatey theme that we had today. And we must take time out to thank those who really brought the show to life. And today it was Steve Shepherd from Bradleystoke Radio, as well as Molly Jeffries from St Stephen's Drama Group right here in Bristol. Thanks guys, and I hope you're having a lovely Easter so far. I myself will be having two weeks off for the Easter holidays to spend time with the family and maybe go on holiday somewhere. And so I'll be returning with a story I already have lined up and I'm very excited about it. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com, where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk So until next time guys, take care and look after each other.